Good morning and welcome to Rising. Well, Robbie, despite the best efforts of big tech, <laughs> we're back. Here we are. What are we going to do with our newfound lease on life? Well, we're going to enjoy the fact that we have Kim Iverson in studio. Yay. Welcome to DC. <laughs> Live and in person. I 3D printed myself this morning. <laughs> so here I am. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. Great to be with you guys, actually, for the first time in person. And meeting Ryan for the first time in person. Met Robbie before he came to my little tiny studio in LA. So, um, <laughs> what do you think here. of the studio based on how you thought it might look? It, I mean, it looks pretty much the way, you know, I see it. Yeah, yeah but it's pretty cool. It's cool seeing everybody in person and, uh, you know, being here, of course. So lots of fun. So <laughs> we're, very, we're very excited for it. <laughs> yeah, but let's go ahead and talk about the what elephant happened? in the room. Uh, where were we for an entire week? We were out because we were suspended from YouTube. Um, and so uh, what had happened, I mean, if you want to give the rundown, Ryan, do you want to give the rundown? Right, and not technically out. You could watch us at Facebook, which still exists. True. I learned over the last week that Facebook is a thing that still exists. And then also <laughs> at thehill.com, which is kind of the owned and operated like, place where our, the videos always live. I, I have actually met a bunch of people that watch it just on the Hill because yeah. they find it easier to navigate. But most people, most people like YouTube better. It's like it's, the fire sticks better. It's easier to watch it on your actual TV. Mm -hmm. and, and, and also a lot of people just get served right. the videos. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a huge portion of the audience. And so, right, so last week, uh, if you haven't read Robbie's piece or my piece, uh, we, we committed two crimes. One crime was posting video. I think it was three crimes. I, I only think it know was three. I think it was three because it was last year. Oh, there was a CPAC. crime a year ago. Right. Yeah, and then doing it again this year. So they posted a Trump video. And contrary yeah. to what our audience might have expected, it was not Kim's Yeah, fault. believe it, it or not. not. <laughs> it wasn't, I wasn't actually even involved in, the, offending in the video that ended up finally being like the nail in the coffin. It was you two. I leave you two alone for a minute. It was Emily Jashinsky. <laughs> it was Emily. Yeah. So we, we had raw footage of Trump speaking that was uploaded just by the Hill, the, him speaking at CPAC, and then also in a rising clip, Ryan and I were talking with Emily. We played a part of, of him talking. It was in a segment about Ukraine, and he happened to say in his remarks about what he would do about Ukraine, him being Trump, um, he said he referred to rigged election. We did not you know, immediately jump in to say, by the way, that's not true. The election was not rigged, even though I don't think the election was rigged. I know you don't think the election was rigged. We've said on the show it, many it, times that thought, we don't think that. It, it went through a million different court cases. Every judge, even the Trump-appointed sure. judges, were like, dude, you lost. And, and we, you called Trump, I think, a madman mad in that segment. Mad we criticized we Trump, fraud. but yeah. it was a segment about Ukraine, so we didn't specifically, immediately, with vigor, rebut the election part. And YouTube has claimed that violates their election misinformation policy. It was mm -hmm. akin to us spreading misinformation that we were just reporting what Trump has said. We, uh, we find that to be a very curious interpretation of the rule. Obviously, YouTube can have whatever rules it wants. I think there's a big difference between reporting what a major political figure says and like endorsing it, I don't. I don't understand how straight news could thus operate. You know, what if there's no commentary in the segments at all? What if you're just what if you're just C-SPAN or something? Well, that's like, what that's what it was with the CPAC. Right, with C-SPAC, right, it was. There was no commentary whatsoever. Yeah. So, we we served our time. Here we are. Yeah, suspended <laughs> right. for seven days. And then, at, at what point does who? What what other statements do you have to right. uh, immediately tamp down? Like if Andrew Cuomo says that he was. Uh, you know, driven out of office by cancel culture, and then an, and an, a legitimate election was overturned by cancel culture. 
what is the YouTube executive kind of ruling right. on whether or not that has to be called misinformation or is Cuomo right. allowed to say that and then are we allowed to have a clip of Cuomo saying that without us spreading misinformation? Right. We, we don't know. We haven't we haven't what been if, told What yet. if you're just you know, what if you view yourself as an anti-misinformation journalist or YouTuber or something, so you play a lot of clips of people like Trump talking because you're going to bash them from the left, and may, but maybe you're bashing something else they're saying right. and you, you miss, like, right. you There's don't... so much misinformation right. in yeah. a one-minute Trump clip. And you could get... So it's, I don't, it seems very odd that this is the policy. But well, and just, yeah. the upshot for them seems to be, or the goal seems to be, they don't want any conversation at all about the election, yeah. about, about right. the, whether the election was stolen. Like, they, 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 they want to move on clear, from it. They're like, Pfft. yeah, they want to so move on from it. And so by drawing that really hard line, it just, it, it then incentivizes all of the different creators, left and right, to just not talk about it at all, which, okay, good. What if Republicans try to steal it in 2024? They're already running mm -hmm. people on, sec for Secretary of State on the big lie. They're running people saying Trump was legitimately elected, it was stolen from him, vote for me and I won't let it be stolen again. If, if those people get elected and those people try to swing an election in their state in 2024, you'll have a lot of progressive commentators who are just be like, you know what, it's not worth losing my channel. Just pivot to unboxing videos. Right. Yeah, yeah that's what they want. That, I, think, yeah. I think that's what they want. Yeah. yeah. And more Roblox. Just more, more people playing Minecraft and Roblox. Well, so be it. Well, here we are. We're, yeah, back. we're back. We're back. It's over. And we want to address some actual news. Oh, first, we want to thank everyone for their support while we were away. Thank you for asking. I know I got so many messages. Probably you guys did as well mm -hmm. from our viewers saying, what is going on? Where are you? When will you be back? So we really appreciate that. And now let's turn to some actual news out of Ukraine. Of course, yesterday we learned about a Ukrainian maternity war that was allegedly bombed by the Russians in Mariupol and left 17 people wounded, including women in labor. And that's according to the regional governor. Ukrainian President Zelensky responded to the news saying that dropping a bomb on a maternity hospital is the ultimate proof that what is happening is a genocide of Ukrainians. He also urged Europeans to tighten sanctions against Russia. Meanwhile, CIA director William Byrne said that he believes that Putin is likely to escalate military operations and predicted an ugly next few weeks of fighting for control of Ukraine's cities, including its capital, Kiev. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby called disinformation laughable over claims that the U.S. is operating a biowarfare facility in Ukraine. The response comes after the interaction between Marco Rubio and Victoria Nuland we showed you all yesterday went viral. Let's watch that again. Does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. Hmm. The U.S. also seems to have gaslighting weapons of mass destruction, too. Like, <laughs> we just saw that. Yeah. Like, she just said they have a bio-research facility in response to the question about whether there are biological weapons. Yeah, and yet So is it yes or it. is it laughable? Right. Which is it? Yeah. Would, was she lying under oath? Oh, they wouldn't do that. Are you kidding? <laughs> it would be funny to lie under oath and, and admit to, and, yeah. <laughs> to a bio-weapons <laughs> facility and then be like, actually, no, we don't. We don't. There's, there's none of that. So what, what are they... What? 
I mean, it's you know, this is what one of the reasons why the Russians are saying that they're going in there now is because of the biological weapon labs that apparently they're claiming that are all over the country. And we've heard many people in the government say, well, no, that's not true. They're not there. They don't exist. And now you've got this uh, woman now saying, well, okay, maybe they don't have weapons yet. Why? Because they haven't developed them quite to that point. So they're just doing research and they haven't quite gotten to the point where they would classify it as a weapon. Like, what does that exactly mean? Um, but obviously like, that's a problem no matter what. I don't know if that's really truly the reason why the Russians are going in. Right. It sounds but, like Putin retconning a, 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 re, a rationale after right, everything else right. is falling apart. I thought maybe we haven't paid close enough attention to his propaganda, but I thought it was all about denazification and the Donbass and. Right, which is also, I think. And the creeping NATO, like yeah. up, I mean, up I, to I, his borders. Now, obviously, NATO is bioweapons a, is part of that. Sure. And I'm sure that NATO is actually a legitimate reason why Russia is feeling, uh, I mean, they've been claiming it for 25 years. Uh, but I do think that the, the denazification of Ukraine and, uh, and, and maybe the, I mean, the bioweapons labs, I'm sure, is also a problem. But I, I can't imagine Russia doesn't have their own bioweapons uh, labs. I would imagine that most big powers do. Uh, but certainly, I think that a lot of this is just rhetoric to get the populace on board. Well, the kind of funny thing about the whole denazification line is it's just kind of funny in light of how much uh, the the progressive kind of liberal activist mainstream media, anti-misinformation people in the U.S. have settled on, like, that same goal, right? Everyone on the right is a Nazi and what the mm -hmm. anti-fascism is anti-Nazi efforts. And now you're seeing like very directly how that rationale can be used to justify like authoritarianism and illiberalism. And now those they'll say people are going, okay, well, it's, you know, there actually are some Nazis in Ukraine, but it's more complicated than that. Blah, blah. It's like, right. oh, it's more, now it's more complicated. Right. Now the Nazism yeah. thing's a little bit more complicated than everyone who disagrees with me is a Nazi. I just find that kind of funny. Putin, the leader of Antifa. The, right? we, we found there, there is a leader of Antifa. It's and Putin. It's Putin. <laughs> All right. Well, according to the Wall Street Journal, leaders of Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates declined to speak to President Biden in recent weeks while reportedly taking calls from Putin. And this comes as the administration struggles to contain a surge in energy prices that were already hurting Americans at the pump pre-Ukraine. Some speculate easing tensions between the U.S. and Venezuela are efforts to get Venezuelan oil flowing. And while Venezuela has freed two jailed Americans upon a secret meeting with Biden officials, the reality is that Venezuela's oil sector is crashing and can only carry a fraction of the crude oil they once could. When Senator Ron Johnson questioned Victoria Newland over the possibility of buying oil from Venezuela, here's what she had to say. Not ruling out buying oil from the tyrant Maduro in Venezuela. You're not ruling that out. Uh, I uh, will come back to you on that on that question. Okay. I don't know why we'd rule it out. Let's. I mean, we don't have the luxury of be, of having everyone be our enemy, right? We don't right. buy oil from tyrants, except for the UAE and the Saudi Arabia right. and all the other tyrants that produce right. oil around the world. Right. But the, there, there's some interesting speculation online about that article from the Wall Street Journal that said that uh, that Mohammed bin Salman. And uh, MBZ refused conversations with Biden that that actually may not be true. And that right. and what's interesting is that right after that story came out, the UAE flipped and the UAE is now saying, oh, OPEC plus should actually increase more oil. So UAE abstained at the Security Council. Right. They uh, MBZ has been in touch with Putin the whole time. Putin put out a readout saying that MBZ had said that Russia had a right to defend itself. Like they were leaning hardcore in Russia's direction. But then after that story came out, he said, actually, OK, yes, we should 
increase oil production. And they broke with Saudi Arabia and, and Russia on that. So Good. I wonder if they're finally starting to recognize the, the, their actual geopolitical size in relation to what they've been trying to pull off. This is a tiny little country. And they've, they've been punching way above their weight mm-hmm. for a very long time. And they, they may have found themselves finally in a place where like, oh, we might be about to get knocked out here. But can they even make a decision like that to just say, okay, they can we're gonna... publicly push. Yeah. And MBZ has a weird kind of mentor-protege relationship with MBS, even though that's, even though Saudi Arabia is clearly like the dominant, more powerful country of those two, there is this relationship in which MBZ of, of the UAE has somewhat of the upper hand. It's, it's a very strange right. situation. Well, I just know we can't be in conflict with everyone. We've got to pick our battles. Seriously. We do need to be in conflict with Russia, sort of, because they chose this, so we've got to let some of these other things yeah. go. And meanwhile, Iran is like, we've got a million barrels a day. You well, let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> sign here. We Make already had a deal. We already had the deal. Just d- sign it. And all they want in this deal is some assurances that we won't walk away within, like, six months. Right. Which seems reasonable. Which is a pretty reasonable request. <laughs> we did that. Given what we did. Yeah. All right. Well, stick around. We will have, actually, we'll have our radars coming up, which is an interesting kind of look at how, what platforms you're on kind of ends up dictating what content you right. produce. Rad- but radars are back. Yeah. People radars ask. Radars, radars are back. Have, Those are our little models. All three of us in studio. Coming up next. Kim, what's on your radar? All right. Well, this might seem like deja vu a little bit for some of you who might have caught uh, me actually doing this similar radar. Uh, how long ago was it? Because we were we were off for a little bit. So uh, like, you know, seven days ago or so. Um, but I've corrected the math on this one. For those of you that did catch it, we did take that radar down <laughs> in full disclosure. So this one is a repeat, but with the appropriate math. So bear with me if you've already seen this. Um, it is corrected now. So on March 1st, the FDA released the first round of thousands of pages of data submitted by Pfizer for review of their COVID-19 vaccine. And originally, the documents were going to take 55 years to be released. But because of a court order, we'll get all of the documents by year's end. Now, before we get to the documents, let me first explain why we're getting these in a much more timely manner. Now, back in August, a group called Public Health and Medical Professionals for Transparency filed a Freedom of Information Act request seeking to see the nearly 330,000 pages Pages of data Pfizer submitted to the FDA for authorization and then later approval of their COVID-19 vaccine. The FDA hedged on the request and said they could release the documents, but very, very slowly, as in 500 pages per month. This meant it would take 55 years to get all of the 330,000 pages. Most of us will be dead by then. The FDA claimed the reason for this delay is that it's a lot of pages for them to go through and that redacting the necessary proprietary information would be burdensome. The FDA also claimed there wasn't a need to speed up the release of the data because there wasn't a, quote, compelling need that involves an imminent threat to the life or physical safety of an individual and that there was no real urgency to inform the public concerning actual or alleged federal government activity. Well, a federal judge disagreed, and the court said the pandemic is actually a pretty big and urgent deal. And since the FDA managed to go through the data within weeks to give Pfizer full approval, the FDA can manage to release the data to the public within months. So in late January, the judge ruled the FDA needs to release the hundreds of thousands of pages on a per-month schedule, the schedule being 10,000 pages per month, uh, 10,000 pages March 1st, another 10,000 pages April 1st, 
80,000 pages on the first of each month of May, June, and July, 70,000 pages by August 1st, and then 55,000 pages by the first business, uh, first business day of each month until all pages are released. So rather than getting the complete packet of documents in 55 years, we're going to see the data by the end of this calendar year. So on the first of this month, the scientists received and published on their website the first 10,000 pages they received. So what's in them? Well, this is the big question everyone is asking, but because there are so many pages to go through, it's going to take researchers some time, not to mention the court didn't specify which order the documents need to be released in. So my guess is if there's anything too damning, it won't be released until much later in the year. But there's one document that's gone absolutely viral on social media. People think it's part of this data dump, but actually it's not from this batch, but from documents obtained by the group back in November. And you might have seen or heard about these pages in the past several days. These are nine pages of side effects people reported after getting Pfizer's vaccine. That's a lot of side effects. And these aren't all of them. These are just the ones Pfizer scientists determined to be what they call special interest. Now, a special interest side effect is one scientists think could possibly be re related to the product, but it might not be, so it requires more data collection and investigation. None of the side effects listed in this document are confirmed to be a result of the vaccine. Some side effects in this document are mild, such as soreness, mild fever, or nausea. Others are severe, including various heart and circulatory problems, such as myocarditis and blood clotting, or various nervous system disorders. The document says there were 42,086 case reports between December 1st, 2020 and the following February 28th, 2021. These reports contained a total of 158,893 events, meaning each person on average reported three to four different side effects. Now, these reports come from the government reporting system bears, reports directly to Pfizer, as well as other reporting systems. And the document admits that reporting is voluntary and the magnitude of underreporting is unknown. According to the document, there were 1,223 uh, 1, fatalities. Again, none of this is verified to be directly related to the vaccine, but those who reported likely believed it was, and this is one of the reasons the document has gone viral. However, some people are misreading this data and thinking that 42,083 number represents the number of people in a trial, rather than that being the number of cases filed. They then see the numbers listed by each side effect and they're thinking the rate of occurrence is much higher than it really is. So let's talk about the rate of occurrence. The document lists the official number of Pfizer vaccine doses distributed in the three-month time period, but it's redacted. However, we can guesstimate by looking at each country listed in the document and finding the data through the, through the Our World in Data website. So between December 1st, 2020 and February 28th of 2021, there were about 29 million doses of Pfizer COVID vaccine administered in the European Union and 39 million administered in the United States. At this early point in the vaccine rollout, there were very few other countries who had received it, and Israel seems to be excluded from this document for some reason. Now, even if you do include the 5 million Israelis who had received at least one or even two doses by this point, we're guesstimating the number to be something like 80 million doses. Each person needs two doses, so that 80 million reduces somewhat. Some people will have had two doses in that three-month time period. Others hadn't, so it's hard to say how many in each group. But for the sake of argument, let's just say 80 million people took at least one dose of the vaccine, though this number is surely lower. Now, 42,083 unique reports of special side effects of interest out of 80 million people is a rate of one in 1,900. And this is just in the first three months of the vaccine rollout before many people were even aware of VAERS. Most of the reports were in people aged 31 to 50 years old. Now, granted, not all of these reported side effects are actually related to the vaccine. 
Many of them may just be coincidental. But also Pfizer admits the number of reported side effects could be low because the reporting system is voluntary. Anecdotally, I know several people, myself, who had side effects who sought medical care yet never reported the side effect to VAERS or any other reporting system. And there's a reason for that. A lot of people who claimed they had some sort of issue were demonized, ostracized, and censored. They were told they were wrong, making it up in anti-science. Meanwhile, the government, schools, and employers demanded everyone, regardless of their age or medical history, take the vaccines or lose their jobs and social life. All of this was happening while thousands upon thousands of people made these reports. Informed consent is a fundamental principle in a democratic society made up of a free people. So is scientific debate. Yet a lot of this was lost during this pandemic. Now, getting the vaccine out there was a good thing for a lot of older adults who were high risk for negative COVID outcomes. The vaccine saved lives. But the science wasn't and isn't settled. We're still learning about how well these vaccines even work in children. We're still learning about which dosage and what intervals cause myocarditis in young men. There's a lot we don't know. But we know even less when the documents are hidden or missing or information is being suppressed for one reason or another. So we still are going through all of these 10,000 pages that were just dumped. Um, there were a few things that people have learned so far, like Pfizer paid nearly $3 million to the FDA as like their, um, their user fee. Uh, there was a few other things that, were, that have been uncovered so far, but 10,000 pages is a lot to go through. And of course, we get another 10,000 pages April 1st, and then we get all these other you know, hundreds of thousands of pages in the next couple of months. So there's a lot of data to go through. Transparency is a good thing. People are finally getting it. Um, but what will we learn? Unclear, right. you know, and will people care by then? You know, it's also just going to be so hard to sort out. And right, so they have some indication that maybe in these cases these were genuine side effects of the vaccine. Yeah. With so many millions of people taking it, you know, and, and also many elderly people taking it who you know might then just have had health problems or be right. having health problems, normal health problems, or just things that other people experience. So connecting it to the vaccine and. Uh, and certainly probably in some number of cases, maybe a very small number of cases, there maybe there is some connection, but it's just so hard to know and to tell, I think. Well, unless they do more research. Yeah. Right. I think they do need to do more research on this. And what, what, what your point here is a good corrective to is you saw a lot of people saying, look, there's 10,000 pages of side effects to this vaccine. Well, no. Well, nine pages on that. On okay. that. <laughs> nine pages of side nine Not pages 10,000. Nine pages of side yeah. effects of listed thousands and thousands and thousands. Well, no, no, no. That's, that's not accurate. What, the way you described it is is accurate, that this is a list of all of the side effects that people reported having right. experienced at some point after the vaccine. I know people that had, that had serious side effects. It's virtually impossible to say, here's the side effect that I had. Can you do some sort of test and prove? Like, right. No doctor is going to—I mean— you could, you know, if you had enough money and you just, you know, you, then you could probably find somebody who'd run a, a, mil, a massive battery of tests to try to figure that out. But, like, if you had, uh, you know, if you had a fever the next day, like, okay, now we're close. Mm -hmm. Like, that's, that's a side effect of the vaccine. And so it becomes a spectrum. At what point can you point to a, a malady and connect it to the vaccine? And I tend to trust people when they come up with these judgments. And, and I've, I've heard of plenty of instances of it to raise enough alarms that it should be studied. Mm -hmm. But in the overall context, the number of people who were prevented from being hospitalized and prevented be, uh, from, from dying, right. I, so far, it seems to massively outweigh that. Right. But this well, is why they're going to have a trouble with the uh, you know, approval or the, or the not approval, but mandating it specifically for very young children, it's like, okay, <laughs> the disease is not going to make you very sick. And usually, right. unless you're, if you're a healthy young person, 
the vaccine probably won't either. Uh, this is uh, not going to make you very sick, but you might be sick for a day or something, right? We all, right. all have that side effects. That's why then, they're having a hard time proving it. Is it worth yeah. it if there's you know right. tiny risk? from the disease, tiny risk of myocarditis or whatever, but also you, you maybe a substantially larger risk of just being sick for a day the way many people were if they took the vaccine. Is, is, that, is that even worth it? How could, you, how could you require that, right? How could that decision be taken out of individual people and families' hands? Well, that's it's, why uh, the important part about all of this data being released and us seeing it is that it facilitates that discussion right. and the debate, which is what we should have in a democratic society. We should say, look, I want the informed consent. I want to be able to choose for myself whether or not this is a good thing for me based on all of the individual data. And I do believe that a lot of people would have absolutely still taken it and said, it's worth the risk right. for me. I'm in that age group. I'm seeing my friends die. I, I don't want to have that happen to me, so I'm going to take it. But other people could say, you know, especially these young 20-year-olds, and we saw them partying in Miami Beach at spring break right at the beginning of the pandemic, and they were criticized. And uh, you know, being not by to, me. I'm like, freedom, go. <laughs> <laughs> but they, we should, you know, they should be able to say, look, I'm in an age group where if I catch COVID, I'm not really that at risk. And so I don't really care. Right. Uh, and so that is, you know, that is why we, that's, the, it just calls into question more of the mandate issue and just the suppression of the debate itself for people to be able to make those individual choices, I think is hopefully a lesson we learn, but I don't know. I hope we learn it. All right. Robbie, looking forward to your radar up next, I think. All right, Robbie, what's on your radar? So who is the U.S. angry with? Is it the Russian government, in particular its leader, Vladimir Putin, or is it the very concept of Russia and the Russian people themselves? Because I have to say, it's starting to feel like the latter, and it's disturbing. The sanctions, weapon sales, oil embargo are having negative effects on the people of Russia, but these measures can be defended on grounds that they're aimed squarely at the government in actuality. But what about the gradual cancellation of everything in the Western world that is Russian in origin? People are dumping out vodka. Why? How can we describe this as anything other than rank xenophobia? And I'll give you an example. The Cardiff Philharmonic Orchestra was scheduled to have a concert featuring the music of Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Now, I know very little about classical music, but even I know who Tchaikovsky is. He was a famous 18th century composer whose best work, Swan Lake, The Nutcracker, The 1812 Overture, are still popular today. Tchaikovsky, though, was Russian. And thus, the Philharmonic has decided that in light of recent events, it would be wrong to play his music. Seriously, the composer has been dead for 130 years. Now he's not just dead, he's canceled. Here's the statement. Quote, the decision on this concert was very much based on here and now. A member of the orchestra, his family, has directly involved in the Ukraine situation, and we are trying to respect that situation during the immediate term. There were also two military-themed pieces as part of the program that we felt were particularly inappropriate at this time. We were also made aware at the time that the title Little Russian, Symphony No. 2, was deemed offensive to Ukrainians. How is Tchaikovsky offensive? He has nothing to do with Vladimir Putin or the war in Ukraine. On the contrary, he was an opponent of Russian nationalism who loved Ukraine. As my colleague at Reason, Billy Binion, writes, Tchaikovsky, quote, inserted themes from Russian folk tunes, but imbued his music with the operatic and balletic lyricism more characteristic of the works of his neighbors. Perhaps more importantly, his disposition for an international musical style informed the ways in which he shared it with the world. In an era when many Russian composers siloed themselves off from the globe, Tchaikovsky sought to be part of it. During a three-month tour in 1888, he became the first Russian composer to personally unveil his music to Western Europe. 
Note as well that piece of music that's specifically bothering everyone right now is the 1812 Overture because it's about Russia and it's about war. But even that's missing some really important context. So let's focus on the Overture, which you've probably heard even if you don't know what it's called. So listen. Familiar, right? The piece famously includes the sounds of cannon fire, and yes, it celebrates a great Russian military victory. But the victory is over Napoleon, who invaded Russia after conquering much of Europe. In their conflict with Napoleon, the Russians were the good guys. They were the invaded party. They were in the position Ukraine is in right now. So it gets even stupider. The canceled program was also going to feature Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 2, which was based on Ukrainian folk songs. It's insane. Note that the Philharmonic in Wales is not the only music hall to cancel Tchaikovsky recently. The Chubu Philharmonic in Japan is doing the same thing. So here's my question. At what point would it have been appropriate to cancel art and music by Muslims in the wake of 9-11? Didn't political leaders in both parties, including quite famously President George W. Bush, warn us not to succumb to knee-jerk fear and hatred of people whose only crime was sharing a religion or ethnic background with the terrorists? Weren't we all supposed to recoil in horror at the idea of treating others like that? So what has changed exactly? Russians are white. That's, so the, the, that is certainly what I'm hearing many conservatives saying. Um, so I don't know okay if that's the case. Care. Yeah, if they're white. It's not racist because okay. they're right. white people. Right. Yeah, take that, Lib. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can follow that. No, I no, mean, no, they're saying it, it's okay to practice this. I mean, th th I'm seeing people on the oh, right. Oh, it's, it's this justified. Right. It is yeah. okay to practice uh, uh, th this entire moral group sanction against all Russians because white people aren't marginalized. Liberals so, don't have a okay, problem okay. doing that to white people. Whereas if it, it was Muslims, then it's then it. it Flags, they're kind of You know of what racist, this reminded me of? But I don't know. Uh, do you remember who got canceled after 9-11? The Cat, Dixie Chicks. Cat Stevens. Oh, yeah. I don't remember that, actually. Cat, Cat Stevens converted to Islam. Uh, and, and so he was basically kind of drum, drummed out of society. Yes, the Dixie Chicks. Right. Uh, white people. Oh, white, white people. people. Uh, white people. For saying that they were embarrassed that Bush was their yeah. president, yeah. which is just voicing... The feeling that I think what what gives that theory uh, more credibility is that there is frankly a lot of just like across the board demonization of like whiteness in kind of progressive social justicey activism circles like the kinds of seminars Ramba D'Angelo type people put on. I don't think that's broadly representative of how like liberals think about things, but it, it is out there. Right, and remember, we also blocked a mosque from being built in Manhattan. Yeah, that, right, and I, right. I don't want to say there was actually there was right. no actual uh, bigotry or reprisals against Muslims. Certainly, yeah. there was, but our but we now recognize it was among that the was people. wrong. Right. We recognize it was, and it was it was at some level it was discouraged, right, by the by the 
by the, by the left, people but it, was in, the, it was the right that was mostly doing it after 9-11. It was the right mostly doing it, although Bush said not to do it. He, oh, you he might did. have said not to do it, but the well, culture still did it, you know, yeah. people within the culture. But I felt like yeah. it was people doing it, whereas right. now it's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the elites are doing it, or the right. elites are the elites. giving absolute permission to do it. This is, a, this is an orchestra. This is as elitist you can get than the, 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 right. the symphony, right? You can't get more liberal elite than this, and they're saying, yeah. Now it would just not be the right time to have a mosque next to our... Like, that's the equivalent of what they're saying, right? And they also canceled uh, the Canadians, right? Didn't they cancel, like, this 14-year-old Russian prodigy? Or I don't know if he was 14, but... It, yes, who, yes. Who specifically and explicitly condemned Putin. Yes. Hmm. So I was even, going to talk about yeah. that, but then... I, and I saw that, and then I could not construct whatever the right Google search terms were to find that. It was one of those things that came across my feed there's that I so, could not find so it again. There's so much canceling of There's Russians. so much canceling. Yeah, that it, was a outrageous story. That, canceling is just going down a river. And yeah, who was it that gone, they... You can't even see, yeah. Which university canceled the, the... Was it an author or somebody that they were saying, oh, we're not going to study that person because that person's Russian? And it's also from way back in the... Yeah, it was, I forgot which university That happened so many they, times yeah. now. Like, we couldn't yeah. even... We'd need more than... <laughs> universities will cancel any speaker for any Tolstoy reason. Tolstoy can survive the Cold War, but not... But not... Uh, not this not Cold War. Not Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. But, but isn't that funny how... Because cancel culture is so misinformed oftentimes about who they're canceling. Like... Tchaikovsky is not a Russian nationalist, like loved the Ukraine. The 1812 Overture is about a Russian defensive victory against aggression. It's just, but I guess people don't know that. Or they but there just... are Ukrainians who hate being called little Russians. Because that, yeah. you know, that's, that's a phrase that a lot of Russians would use for Ukraine. But that aside, this is counterproductive, deeply counterproductive in the sense that you could be appealing to the Russian people and saying, we're one people. Mm-hmm. Like, why, why, like, do not support this invasion. Right. We're not your enemies. Instead, they're actively saying, no, 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 we're, we're your enemies. Yeah. We need Hug a Russian Day. We do. That's right. And what we can declare today. Let's, let's declare <laughs> right. today day. and tomorrow. Why not? We'll throw yeah. tomorrow, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to your radar coming up next, Ryan. Ryan, what's on your radar? The Russian invasion of Ukraine has famously unified European countries, and you've no doubt seen the headlines about Switzerland breaking with its tradition of neutrality and freezing Russian assets, and Germany breaking with its hostility to military spending by announcing plans to pump some 100 billion euros this year into defense. But there's another shift underway that's getting far less attention but could be far more consequential. Germany also announced it would be pumping nearly a quarter of a trillion euros over the next few years into an effort to dramatically shift away from reliance on Russian energy. Now, that's also what the European public wants. The British public, in a new survey, said the same thing. By a 30-point margin, British voters said the country should move toward energy independence by pivoting to clean energy rather than by expanding fracking and increasing domestic production. The Biden White House is making similar arguments. But in our system, the government can't just count on members of its party to support the party's agenda in the legislature, an element of our system that is completely mystifying to Europeans. But Joe Manchin, apparently our de facto president, recently said he's on board for a major climate bill. So it's looking somewhat possible at this moment. Now, I talk a lot on this show about the need to shift to clean energy, but don't go into much detail. 
So to set a baseline for these conversations going forward, I wanted to pull some newly released projections from the Department of Energy. Now, these projections were released just last week, but they were completed before the bipartisan infrastructure bill was passed, and so they don't factor in some of those investments, and they don't factor in the climate bill, of course, since it hasn't passed yet. But they do offer some estimates of where we'll end up if clean energy prices decline by about 40% over the next few decades. So to start with, it's worth knowing where we are now. So that right there is fuel by fuel type. You'll see petroleum is at the very top, followed closely by natural gas. Way, way down, we have coal roughly tied with nuclear, which is tied with other renewable energy. Down at the bottom is hydropower and fuels like ethanol. Okay, so where do we use our energy? So if you look at that one there, electric power is at the top, and that's largely fueled by natural gas now, with coal having collapsed and nuclear failing to deliver on its promises. Tied for second and third is the transportation sector and the industrial sector. And the more you electrify transportation, the more you increase the load on the grid. That's why it's incredibly important to get wind and solar generation expanded at the municipal level. All right, so where's the resistance coming from? So petroleum is expected to continue to be used in sectors with slow turnover to electric. You can see on the right here with this chart here that there's been a surge in electric vehicles and the Department of Energy estimates that could flatten out, but it doesn't necessarily have to. So they see a slight decline in the number of gas powered cars, but not by much. So next, let's look at electricity generation. So this is basically the grid. The middle chart there is the projection in the case of low costs for renewables, which we can kickstart with government subsidies and incentives, which is what Germany is planning to do. Now, if we do get those costs down, solar in the next chart overtakes natural gas as the leading source of energy in about 25 years, and wind climbs into third place. In just about 10 years, wind and solar combined would be producing more energy than natural gas. So those are projections based on us not doing much different than we're already doing. But if we got serious, we could do a ton more. So here's how the EU plans to cut Russian gas imports by two-thirds next year and how they plan to cut it down to very little going forward. Now, it's basically an all-of-the-above strategy, but it's actually investing in everything. When we here in the U.S. say all-of-the-above, we mean we should spend a ton more money drilling and also, if some homeowner wants to put solar panels on the roof, okay, that's fine. We won't stop them unless we're in Florida. Then actually, we will definitely stop them. But a real all-of-the-above strategy means actually investing big money into diversifying our energy sources. Biden and Manchin have a chance to do that now, and they shouldn't miss it. And Kim, I'm curious where, where you sense the public mood is right now when it you know if, if you're watching say fox news you're, you're hearing a lot of we need a drill 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 and we need to get the gas prices down yeah uh which is a satisfying thing to say but do you sense that there are people that are thinking maybe this entire regime of being tied to dictators pumping oil isn't long-term the best solution. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. The one way to get everybody on board is war. We yeah. know that in this country, right? And so when we now see that there is an energy war in a way going on right now with Russia and, and with the OPEC plus countries and OPEC countries, um, a lot of people are talking about energy independence. And personally, I don't think you can be really a sovereign nature, nation unless you are energy independent. I think that's part of it, as well as having your own defense. I mean, there are a few things, but um, certainly there's way more talk of being energy independent. Um, obviously, many people are saying drill, 
and get more oil. But um, we do need to be looking at absolutely everything, and that would then move forward the the other you know the left agenda of going more towards renewable energy. So I think. You know, we probably will see more drilling in the short term, mm -hmm. but maybe there'll be more conversations about moving towards renewables um, for the long term. But we absolutely need to be energy independent. I mean, we need to be energy independent. We, we do, but because of the reality that like governments go to war and, and have national security uh, objectives and fight with each other and do like not productive and economically efficient things, right? In an ideal world, in the Robbie ideal world, we don't need to be energy independent, just like we don't need to be food independent. We don't need to be, we don't need to be cloth Why independent. You be independent. We don't need, you want to it's an, the economy thing, because we, you specialize. We specialize in one thing, other people in other parts of the world specialize in other things. We all trade, Until that's more, war. right. That, so right. you're right, that is true. But ideally, we, there would not be war. There would not be governments having conflict with each other. You wouldn't. Like, that is what's wrecking the system. Well, is I like the ambitions of some. Too, well, I know, but that what's wrecking the system is the ambitions of authoritarian people in governments. Government is ruining. And so uh, we don't need because yeah. you can't. You don't need to be independent in every. Like you can take that that logic to a crazy conclusion, right? That we what we have to produce all our plates in house. We have right. to produce all our furniture yeah, and all I our everything. Think, yes. We did. Well, then we just be North Korea. We just be an autarky well, that doesn't produce anything well because specializing is better. Well, Special no. I mean, you can still do it on your own shore, but still trade. So then you do have the competition. Well, and you trade want for to what? If we well, do everything here, what would be the because point? It, well, if somebody else makes a better plate, then what I What if they make better maybe, energy is what I'm saying. Well, they might, but I can. St I, at least I would still be making it. So, yeah. I mean, there needs to be, I think, uh, we've got to make everything here. And I think the pandemic kind of showed us that when we shut down and we couldn't get things. And, uh, and we, we saw how reliant we are on China for cheap manufactured yeah, goods, right. like things like masks and hand sanitizer. But that would be so, fine if the Chinese government wasn't crazy and trying to kill us all. Well, but they, I mean, <laughs> even if they weren't, it was the, the pandemic. I mean, the world shut down because yeah. the world was afraid of a virus. So even if it wasn't a sinister move, I mean, we could, of course, argue that whether or not it was. But let's just say for the sake of argument, it wasn't. Then it's just about shutting down the borders. You've got to be able to be self-sufficient if you want to be. Otherwise, you turn into Venezuela potentially well, very quickly. On Fox News, when they talk about self-sufficiency, energy self-sufficiency, the first thing that they go to is Keystone. Keystone XL. Right. Biden shut down Keystone XL. There was some absolutely delightful uh, pushback the other day. Let's, can we play that clip from Fox where they, uh, where they talked about Keystone? All right. So if that's not going to happen, Robert, perhaps, as Peter just reported, perhaps, Opening up the Keystone pipeline is not off the table for this White House. What did you take away from that? I think Excel is off the table. Um, let's recall a few things. One, it's the worst type of oil you can have. It's tar sands going from Alberta to the Gulf of Mexico. It wasn't going to really change anything to do with our oil supply. It was to export from the Gulf of Mexico. Mm, also recall that, that's, that under that's President debatable. Trump, well, let me just fit. Okay, it's not actually debatable. Um, <laughs> Uh, it has nothing to do with oil fields. It's a pipeline, and it was going to end the Gulf of Mexico. That's a fact. You should look it up. And with respect to President Trump, as Stephen will tell you, only 10% of it was even done under his four years. So it's not about XL. It's about how do we become energy independent. I've always been supportive of the all-in energy approach for actually 10 years now. It's interesting, Steve, because Robert's making the case that it's regional and the White House is making the case that oil prices are global. So if we increase the overall oil output, so if people take anything away from this segment, should look up what XL stands for in Keystone XL. 
stands for export limited. <laughs> it is limited to exports. It's, it's literally in the name that it, you, these are tar sands oil that you will put in a pipeline, funnel through the United States, down to Louisiana, and then export it. It's, it's in the name. But if you, if you ask, it, and good for, good for Fox News for having somebody on to push back, but otherwise the argument coming out of the, the right wing is, if only we had a Keystone XL going, then your gas would you know, be $2 a gallon again. The actual silver bullet here is to get rid of the Jones Act. But maybe, maybe I should do a radar on that in the future. There you go. I'd, yeah. I'd love to hear I that will. one. Next week. Okay. Excellent. Can't wait. Can't wait for it. So stick around yeah. until Monday yeah. for that one. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, MSNBC host Joy Reid has gotten some flack over her take on the media and the war in Ukraine. We're, we're going to discuss with our, our rising panel. That is coming up next. Yemen has documented a large spike in air raids recently as the U.S. government zeroes in on Ukraine. Even the U.N. has ended its expert panel on Yemen, which has been documenting human rights violations in the country. The media has also been largely silent on conflicts raging in the Middle East or dismissed the suffering as it's raged for decades. Remember this? Now with the Russians marching in, it's changed uh, the calculus entirely. Uh, tens of thousands of people have tried to uh, flee the city. There will be many more. People are hiding out in bomb shelters. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. Well, yesterday, MSNBC host Joy Reid gave her opinion on the matter. Let's listen to that. Okay, let's face it. The world is paying attention because this is happening in Europe. If this was happening anywhere else, would we see the same outpouring of support and compassion? Well, we don't need to ask ourselves if the international response would be the same if Russia unleashed their horror on a country that wasn't white and largely Christian. Because Russia has already done it in Syria. This is a teachable moment for us in the media. We aren't afraid to call out our own industry. There is a lot of soul searching that we need to do in Western media about why some wars and lives seem to matter more than others and why some refugees get the welcome mat while others get the wall. Democratic strategist and council member at large of Montgomery County, Maryland, Will Jawando, and Newsweek contributor and business consultant Denise Long join us now to discuss. Welcome to you both. Good morning, good morning. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, Denise, what did you make of Joy's comments? I I think, look, it's not surprising that there's a lot of coverage of Russia invading its neighbor. Ukraine is a, you know, more developed, more important on the world scale nation. Russia is certainly a very important uh, nation on on the kind of world scale. So, like, she was going for some kind of gotcha there, I thought, that, oh, we only care because it's Europe. But, like... This is, it is, this is a bigger news than some of these other conflicts, which doesn't mean we shouldn't con- cover those conflicts more as well. But I, I thought there was like an obvious explanation to her, her question. 
yeah, you make a good point. It's Russia uh, invading Ukraine and, of course, the history of the USSR and the connection with Ukraine, as well as just the global dynamics around Russia and the United States and all. There's another element to what uh, Joy Reid is talking about here, which is the calling out the media. You know, there are some ways that we know that people of European descent and conflicts related to European descent are perhaps framed differently in the media than are others. But I think Joy Reid also needs to look at the ways she needs to be called out for how she and the folks she trotted out for over a year prior to the 2020 elections uh, didn't actually provide um, unbiased, let's say, coverage to the descendants of slaves in America. They framed American descendants of slavery and the movement uh, as Russian bots. They disparaged and defamed the movement in particular. So I think she needs to maybe apply that to herself as well as the Pan-Africanists that she brought onto our show. Well, the, we, we sort of do have uh, some other examples, right? Russia went after Chechnya, uh, mm. you know, maybe less than less than ten years ago, uh, it, it, and we try. Like the United States is always trying to like export its own particular racial uh, typographies onto right. places where they don't necessarily fit, and so then you start asking the question: Well, are Chechens white? And if Chechens are, are or are not white, how is that supposed to affect how we're supposed to judge the media's coverage or lack of coverage of that war? I think it's all, also easy to think about an alternative scenario. If, if Russia had invaded Japan, I think you'd be mm. seeing the precise same coverage right now, wouldn't we, Will? Yes, this is, we don't have long enough for this segment. I'll just say that yeah. up front. Um, you know, so yes, obviously there's a lot going on here, but I do think the, the Joy's underlying point, which she doesn't make explicitly, is that white supremacy is global, um, you know, and and also anti-Muslim sentiment and anti-certain type of immigrant sentiment is xenophobia is is rampant. I mean, you see it with the Africans and, uh, you know, Ukrainians, Africans living in Ukraine, some who are actually citizens of Ukraine, trying to escape and being told, you know, we want the real Ukrainians, you know, that is a, that could happen in, in, in the U.S. today, get off the bus, we want the actual Americans. So, so I don't think it's quite right to say that we're exporting it. I think it exists, right? You know, you, you think of where the transatlantic slave trade and the dehumanization of, of black people started 500 years ago or so uh, from Europeans coming down to the continent of Africa and Middle East and in starting that that export trade, um, that those concepts are alive and well in Europe and across the country, and it's a gradation. And, and the the immigrants, the Christian Muslim dynamic is part of that. Um, so th- there are a lot of crossways. But I think you look at this, and absolutely, the Ukrainians deserve support, outpouring. They deserve to be uh, allowed into countries like is happening, and all of that should happen. But it should happen for everyone, and it should be fair. And equal. If you look at Poland, for example, when Syria was happening, Russia invading another country, uh, Poland didn't let Syrians in, but they've taken a million Ukrainians. Um, and they passed laws to say, you know, discriminatory laws in Denmark are being proposed that you can, that Ukrainians shouldn't have to give up valuable jewelry when they come in, uh, unlike other refugees to help pay for their stay. So there's just, there's a, so many unequal standards here uh, that do have their basis, I think, in the othering of people, uh, whether based based on religion or skin tone, 
And that is a conversation we should have. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing what we're doing with the Ukrainians. We absolutely should. It just means that everyone should be treated with that same kind of empathy and respect. Well, and to well I have a question point. if we yeah. should, though. I'm sorry. I just wanted to push back on that a little bit. I would question if we should. Ukraine has a very long history of uh, supporting Hitler, as well as its present, as Will alluded to, um, actions and embrace of neo-Nazism and anti-black America, uh, anti-black racism, Africa, African in well, this sense. So I think we should consider uh, I mean, which say, immigrants are a fit for which country. To say that Ukraine has a has a history of supporting Hitler would be like saying France has a history of supporting Hitler. Just because you had a few Absolutely. kind of French collaborators in the Vichy government doesn't mean that France supported Hitler. You know, they were invaded uh, and there, were, there was a government that was propped up briefly you know, by the Nazi regime that included some collaborators. But that doesn't remotely mean that Ukraine right. kind of worked I mean, what about uh, Germany? It, <laughs> it, does, it doesn't mean right. that the entire right. it, that the 100% right. of the population. Right. Gonna, but yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, it doesn't right. mean it's, that 100% of the population did. However, it does mean, and what we do know is that there is a present neo-Nazi um, embrace within Ukraine. And what we do see on camera, if we can trust anything we see on camera right now, um, what we do see is the way in which Africans are treated, as well as Indians, right? Non-white people are treated within Ukraine. And while I think that refugees have a space in place and should be taken care of it doesn't it, we should really look at the best fit for that and who we are bringing into the country and the ideologies that they bring with them that's my point where would you suggest they go with that I, and, and by the way i i actually agree with you on the history of it i do think that ukraine has a particularly uh dark history when it comes to um, the holocaust and world war ii more so than a lot of other countries well, in but, particular i mean they got conquered and occupied. No, the, the people like, turned on the Jews in that country. They were ratted out by their own neighbors. It well, was really Well, I mean, if, if we're going to condemn countries for anti-Semitism, there isn't a country that's going to survive, no, including but the one was, that we're sitting in right now. There was a lot more of it, I would say, in Ukraine than there were yeah, in other or, countries. To Will's point, yes. So, yeah, but, I mean, but, And it's the... And it's the continuity of that, right? Because America also was, let's just call it, like a slave-holding country. I'm seventh gen. My people were part of that. So it's not about deriding the history as much as it's looking at the extent to which the country has evolved from that history. What what country would be a better fit for uh, for Ukrainians? First of all, for refugees, I think we need to people keep people connected closer to their homelands so that they can reintegrate into their homelands once things are stabilized. And I do think that we need to consider, particularly in the United States, the social and political dynamics in which immigrants are coming and the ideologies that they bring. Uh, you know, when we brought Nazis over here to help with our science and all of that, did we think about the impact that that would have on the people that they were uh, the non-white, right, the non-blonde folk that they were going to interact with and have power over. So I think those things are important, Kim, and I don't have a short answer to that, but I, I think that countries need to consider that. And we can't bring everybody who is struggling or in a war-torn country into the United States, and nor should we. Hmm. Will, we'll give you the last word. Yeah, I, well, I think, again, yeah, proximity matters. My, my, my talk is more about what are we doing with aid? What are we doing with not necessarily where people go, but how we treat people? If you look at that reporter who I would not, is not a Nazi, but he has bought into subconsciously or not, the, that some places have conflict and, those, and that's expected and we, we are okay with it to some extent. And some places shouldn't have that conflict because we think that they are more civilized to use his own word 
uh, that it's more stable. And that's just not true. It hasn't been true over the course of history. It's a short view of history. Countries go in and out over thousands of years. You know, you can, you, we could have that long discussion. And I just think that pervasive view is damaging to people in, in these refugee countries across the world. And it's damaging to the sentiment here in the U.S. about what we will do to support people wherever they go. And I think that's a problem. And it's something that Joy was getting at. Uh, it's, and it's a long conversation. It's something we should tackle. Will Jawando, Denise Long, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, the debate on free speech on college campuses reignited with a recent op-ed in the New York Times by student Emma Camp, and she will join us next to discuss her viral op-ed. Our next guest has made a big splash in the debate surrounding free speech issues on college campuses, something an issue near and dear to my heart. And she wrote this New York Times op-ed titled, I came to college eager to debate, I found self-censorship instead. Emma Camp writes, quote, I went to college to learn from my professors and peers. I welcomed an environment that champions intellectual diversity and rigorous disagreement. Instead, my college experience has been defined by strict ideological conformity. Students of all political persuasions hold back from saying what we really think. Emma is a senior at the University of Virginia. She joins us now to discuss her piece. Emma, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. So you've received some backlash on this, which is kind of interesting because it sort of, I guess, so showcases your entire point um, about not being able to say and, and think the way you want. Now, colleges have always been thought to be the places where these radical ideas could be born and discussed and debated, but that's not the experience you had. Yes, that's true. So I, I think a lot of what's been going on is you know, I, I really think that in an ideal world, the purpose of a college education is to kind of grow and develop intellectually. But I think what's happening is that right now there's a lot of kind of social capital to be gained from kind of publicly dunking on other people. Um, and so what that really incentivizes is this like really harsh social backlash for kind of the expression of any political opinion that goes outside of the acceptable mean. And I think what happens is that a lot of college students are constantly terrified of saying the wrong thing. And of course, when you're terrified of saying the wrong thing, you're inherently terrified of thinking the wrong thing. And so I think what happens is a lot of people close themselves off to that kind of intellectual development that I think is so important. Yeah, my in my research on this subject, I've, writ, I've written a lot about it. And, and, and by the way, you're, you're coming to work with us at Reason, which I'm very ex excited about. This is a funny way to meet for the first time. I, I see this, uh, this op-ed going viral the other day. I'm like, oh, who, this is really good. Who wrote it? And like, oh, they're coming to work for us. Great. Um, and anyway, my diagnosis of the problem, it, it seems like it's not, it's different, slightly different from campus to campus, but often it is not uh, most of the teachers or even most of the students who, it's not that they want you to self-censor, but there's a minority of students who are very militant, uh, kind of against the concept of free speech because they're worried that, they're, they're very worried that offended feelings are like a form of violence. So if anyone is upset, you've, you've allowed violence to happen against them. And, and it's those people, again, not most people on campus, but a smaller number, who successfully shut down all discussions on those grounds. Is something like that been your experience? Yeah, I think I would agree with that largely. I, I definitely think a lot of this phenomenon happens because students don't want to be you know, the subject of the day in terms of who, who has the ire from the minority of students focused on them. So I would agree with that prognosis uh, 
fairly yeah. much so. And, and, I, and then ironically, you, so you point that out, and then you were very much the student of the day, <laughs> at least on, on Twitter. When you, I saw all these, it was Kim, as you mentioned, all these very you know, massive accounts tend to be people in the sign of mainstream or left of center or liberal media uh, with massive followings, people with big platforms um, doing the thing that I've often heard them say you're not supposed to do, like punching down, right? Aren't you not supposed to just viciously attack or make fun of or belittle or bully, uh, you know, people uh, like in your position who are at the start of their uh, promising careers? And yeah, that's exactly what they were doing. Yeah, I, I found the the response to my article very much sort of proving the point I have to make, which is that, you know, individuals who step a toe out of line face this really intense and really disproportionate social backlash. And then I said that in public and then the name Emma was trending on Twitter. Um, so it, it, was, it was certainly um, a, a crash course in writing publicly. Um, and I do get a little bit of satisfaction in knowing that this response sort of proves that I have a point. And Emma, I thought the, the pile on was un unfair and untoward and, and that it, it, in some ways it did prove your point. But I also want to press you on, on part of it. Isn't, isn't there a way in which you're doing some of the same thing that you're accusing your critics of by, and, and tell me if this is a fair headline. The headline says, you know, I came to college looking for debate. You know, if it, there's, this, there's this elevation of the idea of debate, which I actually find in conflict with, with dialogue and with learning how to think. Like as you're moving from high school into college and then from college on, you're really developing what you think about the world. But if you come into the conversation already convinced of what you think of the world and just looking for people to debate you, like there's something about the debate me bro culture that is the antithesis to me of intellectual development. And so to, have, to find that people are annoyed by that, to me, doesn't necessarily prove the point. Like when I was in college, there was often always that one student who just wanted to like get in arguments for the sake of arguments rather than kind of sorting through ideas. And I, I, whenever that whoever that person was would raise their hand and be like, oh, God, here we go. We're just going to now, we're just going to be just kind of scoring points against each other for the rest of this class. I mean, the first thing I'd say to that is I don't write my headlines, right? I, I didn't <laughs> right. mention yeah. the That's why I asked you if you thought it was fair. Yeah. I, I really didn't, when, when I sat down to write it, I didn't really think of it as about debate per se, but about just being able to express a wealth of ideas and possibly have productive conversations about them or even be able to entertain them. So I, I understand the frustration you exp expressed there, but I, I really didn't intend to communicate that idea at all. And, you know, it, it's part of the perils of not writing your own headlines, I suppose. And sometimes debate's not necessarily just to score points, but I like that phrase, the debate me bro culture. I've never <laughs> heard that one before, but, you know, a lot of times it's about, you know, the debate is about learning and growing from one another. And one thing that I think Ryan and I would both appreciate about your piece, Emma, is that you mentioned that you sort of sought refuge in the philosophy department. I know Ryan and I both have our degrees in philosophy, so we, we get it, you know, we go to those departments and study that uh, in order to have those various different points of view brought up and, and to discuss. And oftentimes, you know, when you are studying philosophy, we're forced to take a position. And then the very mm -hmm. next class, they say, now that you've taken this position on this, you need to take the other position and debate that just as ferociously as you did the very first. But that's, so that's interesting. So where did you find 
places in college, you know, for other students that are watching this and they're wondering and they're feeling stifled, where can they go that you found in college where they can have these sorts of intellectual conversations that, I guess, challenge the norms? Really, the main place where I find that is a, it's, I, it's technically a debating society, but it isn't a debating society in the way we would think of it, where it's a lot of debates happening. It's sort of like a, a social intellectual club at UVA called the Jefferson Society. Um, it's where I have most of my friends, and it's where, it's really the only place at UVA I've been able to find where there's these kind of cross-ideological friendships. I really don't know anyone outside of the Jefferson Society who has cross-ideological friendships. So some of my best friends, like one of my best friends is in abject Marxist-Leninist. He is a communist, and we argue about communism all the time because I'm a left libertarian, but we're still able to be really good friends, right? And I also have friends who are way more conservative than me or way more leftist than me, and we're able to not really have debates. I don't really think of us as debating each other, but have like good, good faith conversations about political topics and also about things that are completely unrelated and just about our lives or a movie we liked. Um, and so that's really where I, I found at UVA where I can have this kind of rich conversations. And it's one of my favorite things about my college experience. And where, where were you when you kind of learned that the piece had been published and that you were trending? And what, what was that? What was that like? So I was actually in a cabin in the mountains of Virginia. I had gone on a very brief kind of two day spring break trip with some friends and the cabin had really spotty Wi-Fi. So I knew it was going to be published on Monday morning and I could I was I could hear my phone starting to blow up. And I looked at my Twitter because I, I figured that it would have some kind of response. And I checked Twitter and it was there were a lot of responses. But thankfully, I had friends who were saying, Emma, put your phone down, play Frisbee. Emma, put your phone down, <laughs> let's play cards. And so it wasn't until later when one of my friends goes, Nicole Hannah-Jones just did a thread about you. And I was like, what? And then my friends went, Emma, you're trending on Twitter. And I was like, what? And so I, it was really this kind of shocking response. Because frankly, I knew something like this was a possibility. But to be honest... Thinking, it, it felt kind of like a self-centered thought to think, I, am a Camp, am so important <laughs> to break the internet. Like, I actively tried to keep myself from having that thought because it felt like vanity. So what ended up happening is that I was very shocked by the degree of attention that the piece got. That must be something for you to even ask that question. That's like, a silly, that to me seemed like a funny question to ask but because it's like, what do you mean? Where were you when you went viral? <laughs> like, is there something that people remember? Where were you when you first went viral? Do you remember? I've never gone viral. I'm sure. Oh, no. come on, right? Oh, come that's on, not give true. me a break. Where were you when you went viral? Where were you when you went? I, viral? I can remember like sitting in my before I moved to DC, sitting in my house that I, uh, my wife and I lived in briefly before we moved to DC. Uh, when the UVA, uh, uh, UVA, the the Rolling Stone rape scandal story yeah. that I was like uh, one of the first early skeptics of, and then everyone online was calling me like a denier of rape for 24 hours. Where were you? So I was like, I was in my living room. <laughs> I, was my, I was pacing. I was in my family room, living room, bedroom, just back. We're like, is this the end? And then the whole story got to Biden. Well, it's funny because you asked this question. I'm thinking, who would know where they were? But then when I recently went viral on Twitter. Kim goes viral like three times a day. So, yeah, you don't remember. Well, this was the time when when people were hating on me. And Keith Olbermann came after me. And there were all these people that were coming after me. And um, I was actually at Disneyland when that And I I remember now sitting in at the restaurant at Disneyland, at the happiest place on earth, finding out that I was being dragged on Twitter. So it's like funny. It can be a searing experience. And Emma, I'm curious if there was anything that people said publicly that you agreed with that made you think like, huh, okay, that's actually a fair point. Yeah, I 
I think one of the main things that I definitely think is fair is people who kind of pointed out my immaturity. Um, and what I mean by that is I, I definitely got a lot of responses that were kind of like, ah, I agree with the point that this isn't a very good example of the genre. And to that I sort of say they're probably right. You know, I, I recognize that I'm very young and that I'm a very early point in my career. And I really hope that when I'm the same age as a lot of my good faith critics when I'm 32 or 42 or older, you know, my writing is much more developed and much more strong. So I, I certainly take those points, uh, especially. And you and you got a, a, and we'll let you go, but I, I, some people were being like, oh, how dare someone have this opinion, like, during a war with Ukraine, aren't there more important things going on? But, like, you didn't choose when this op-ed gets published, right? Did You probably wrote no, this weeks ago. No, I didn't. I, I really find the, the funniest thing about them when people are going, why are we talking about this when there's a war in Ukraine? And I went, yeah, why are we talking about this when there's a war in Ukraine? You don't have to pay this much attention to me. Please do something else. <laughs> Good point. Well, Emma, thank you so much uh, for joining us. It was nice to meet you and look forward to meeting you in person when you come down to D.C. All right. Thank you so much. And coming up, the NIH sent The Intercept 300-plus pages of redacted documents in response uh, to our, uh, part of our legal battle that we have ongoing with them. We'll go over that next. Yesterday, Republicans on the House Oversight Committee sent a letter to HHS acting and acting National Institutes of Health Director Lawrence Tabak demanding the NIH release the information redacted on hundreds of pages of documents concerning the Institute's relationship with EcoHealth Alliance and support of gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China. So The Intercept sued the NIH over public records related to coronavirus research funded by the Institute that officials originally refused to release. In response, the NIH sent The Intercept 314 pages of documents, 292 pages of which were, look at this, completely redacted. Look at that. That is outrageous. So it uh, looks like you've got a lot of reading ahead of you, Ryan. We yeah, do. Yeah, you got it right there. That is an <laughs> impressive stack. And so, right, so here's one unredacted page. Yes, but you after this, cover. after this. Very good. There you go. All right. Not very, much that's there. helpful. That's yeah. helpful. All right. It's all oh, like it, that. So, oh, very helpful. Keep it going. Very helpful here. Yeah, this is going to be some speed very, reading here. Very helpful. I find anything there? Oh, mm. yeah. No, hold on. Let me so, if you hold it up to the light. I'm pretty sure then you can finally see so something. So, I mean, one thing that might be going on here is that because of our lawsuit, that's because of the Intercept's lawsuit against NIH, they're required to produce something like 500 pages a month or so. And so, Here's 500 pages. Yeah. Now, literally. we're not certain that this is their method of kind of getting around the requirement. Um, but what, it's a giant document. It's, so it's the uh, NIAID Strategic Plan for COVID-19 Research from April 2020. It's unlikely that there's anything terribly newsworthy or interesting in here. But it's like a almost 400-page report. So that satisfies 400-plus pages report now we will i'll have my I'll, I'll let my kids draw on these so we don't so we don't wait so we don't have the We're nih's obfuscation end up just destroying trees for no reason and then there are a couple pages of actual emails uh, i definitely owe you a beer or something when this is over three exclamation points looks Who like they that? owe you um, a beer too this, that? Uh, this is from lillian abbey somebody at the nih so i mean it turns out there's nothing really newsworthy in these either we've gone through those uh, but so House, Republic House Republicans sent 
this, this letter yesterday to HHS saying, come on, uh, stop, stop with this. How ridiculous. And it was House Republicans yeah. earlier who were able to, what they do, in, they call it in camera, which means like in person, they were able to take a look at the actual documents that were unredacted and had give, been given to us redacted, and they, and they took notes on those documents. And so they were then able to share those notes publicly. So you couldn't, they're not releasing the unredacted documents, but it would be, it'd be just an absolute nightmare for a, some poor hapless committee staffer to go in and have to try to write down 450 pages of this thing. It's, and to, to me, it's just a portrait of uh, lack of transparency. It's like, just come on. Yeah, you know, and this is a government agency. So we, the people, should be Here's able another, to see. Uh, you know, there you go. Well, it's a heavy reading for you there, Robbie. Uh, we should be able to see what is going on with our tax dollars. I mean, a lot of this is our money that is being used to fund this research potentially. And we want to know about it. They don't we want, want to, to tell know. Us. They don't want to tell us, obviously. I mean, look at this. This is outrageous. I filed a totally un different subject. I filed a public records request uh, with the New York City Human Rights Commission uh, right before the pandemic. And then for two straight years, they would just send me an email every couple of weeks saying, no, our office is still closed because of the pandemic. <laughs> Didn't need anyone to go into a physical office. I needed them to send me some emails that I had asked for. <laughs> they could have done this from any computer in the country, but because the office was closed, the pandemic couldn't this, help me. This just makes us more suspicious, doesn't it? Right. I mean, that, that's the other actually... thing. It's, it's yeah. just absolutely, absolutely fuel for people who are deeply suspicious of what they're up to. Because mm -hmm. what they're up to is bad. I think Might be. Bad. Well, clearly. We, don't, we can't say it's not. Right, <laughs> but this way we can't bad. say either way, right? We have to sit here and say, well, we don't really know because they're not showing us. But it makes us believe that there's something. They clearly have to hide something. Right. People they want might not even know what they're hiding. Like, this is a giant stack of documents. Like, no one person knows everything that's in here, right? Yeah. This, this shows government bureaucracy expands. And like People are signing off on projects and grants, and, and they have no idea what everybody else is doing. And this is, like, I, don't, I don't believe there's a single government official who even understands the scope of the documents that you've requested, right? Probably not a single individual right. one, yeah. And, I, and, and that's actually probably one thing that higher-ups are nervous about, because they're like, well, what, what, what's in there that I don't know about? Mm. No, right, and they right. probably don't know. They probably don't right. know. Right. That's funny. <laughs> well, well, enjoy. This will be some interesting weekend. Yeah. And this is all about. Yeah. And this is all about the the U.S. government funding of research in Wuhan. Yeah. What What were we funding? And what you know, What What was the rationale for that funding? Was it in violation of the ban on gain of function? You ask. You ask Anthony Fauci. He says no. He says, well, gain of function, what, what is... What, what does are, that even mean? What are words, really? <laughs> Manipulating a virus <laughs> so that it is more contagious and yeah. lethal and then letting it escape from a lab? No, oh. not gain of function anymore. Yeah, Mehdi, Mehdi Hassan, my former colleague, who's now at MSNBC, uh, is one of the few that has pressed him directly on this, and that was his response. You know, what does gain of function really mean <laughs> when you get down to it? Because he's a huge advocate of gain of function research. Right. But then when you when you press them, well, was this gain of function? Well, we've determined it wasn't. Yeah. Well, what was it? Tell us what it was. Well, don't worry about it. Well, and this is just meant to tie you guys up in court. You know, they're doing right. this yeah, so that just... you, you have to go back to court. You're going to have to ask the judge to to lift the redactions on this. Right. Because they'll say, look, we re we reproduced 500 pages right. of documents as required by your court order. Right. They didn't what, say what, how many what... words needed to be per page <laughs> right. that you could actually read. Well, right. And scientists, health officials, government Scientists, health official people 
have massive incentives to not give any information that makes the lab leak theory more likely because then that the the policy implications of that right is greater regulations of labs is telling you know the science the <laughs> the, right. the Dr. Frankenstein they can't keep doing what they're doing without scrutiny mm-hmm. and they don't want that even right. if that's not the explanation that's right any right. additional information in that respect makes it more likely they get regulated we the american people look more closely at what is being funded and what are the actual practices of lab and they you know they just want to play in their sandbox without any right and there are plenty oversight. of there are plenty of scientists who earnestly believe that gain of function research is going to make the world a better and safer place that's right. their that's their genuine position and some of those scientists from that position deeply want to discourage people from exploring the lab leak hypothesis mm-hmm, right. because then they think that if that hurts the research it makes the world a worse place plenty of other scientists and plenty of members of the public say Mm, maybe there's some benefit to that research. There are also some significant costs. Some scientists right. think bringing back dinosaurs and releasing them on the planet would be a cool <laughs> idea. <Yeah. laughs> nice experiment. We don't listen to them. Yeah. So, tomorrow on Rising, public defender Olaimia Luren will join us to discuss the humanitarian crisis happening on Rikers Island. We also talked to congressional candidate Alexandra Hunt. And for you podcast lovers, Rising is now available everywhere you listen to podcasts. So do us a favor, give us a five-star rating and review because it helps people find the show. I love this graphic. Isn't it cool? I I (laughs) love this. I said on Twitter, it was the vibe shift. Vibe shift. Totally. Back to a happier time, the uh, the 80s. The 80s. The 80s. We're a happier time. Well, they led into a much happier time. And we have have a threat of nuclear annihilation again, so... Right. It's, it does feel like the I 80s hope it goes all over well again. Well, this time as it did last time. Rocky 8 needs to be coming around. <laughs> Is there already a Rocky 8? It's that's the sequel one with um, Creed, right? Oh uh, yeah, that's right? right. Isn't it yeah. the same? I've actually never seen a single Rocky movie. No, oh, they're so good. Are they good? They're so good. All right. Well, maybe I'll do that this weekend. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Well, Ryan is reading his yes. paper. Yeah, you're yeah. going to read. I got a lot of I'm reading. I'm going to watch movies. Up. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.